0: The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 34, Rock and Roll, Part 1. Jack didn't think anything of the witch's parting comment at the end of the last session, or rather, he didn't consciously think anything of it. She had set a spell of doubt and fear to take root in his subconscious, and soon it would spread through his awareness like a boreal forest, wild, tangled, and inescapable. And he wouldn't see it coming. Giants again, Jack? Isabel teased as the three friends gathered in the archive. Are you sure you aren't compensating for something? Don't get fresh with me, lassie, or I'll call the unseelie court to session in your general direction, Jack shot back, winking. You wouldn't dare, Isabel rejoined, growing suddenly quiet. I didn't understand a word of that, Lucas cut in. Are you guys fighting? No, no, nothing like that. Isabel's just teasing me because I'm still Jack the Giant Killer in my stories. Or at least I give them work and keep them around where I can see them. And you give them far more attention than they deserve, Isabel went on. Irish tales seem to have a never ending supply, Jack said. I'm just availing myself of local, sustainable resources. "'There is that, I suppose,' Isabel agreed. "'This tale will have it all,' Jack promised. Marvelous heroes, foolish giants, maybe even the grateful dead.' "'Rock and roll!' Lucas shouted. "'Kinda,' Jack agreed. "'Although he didn't have time to explain just then,' The particular bit of rock and roll that Jack was most excited about involved his Uncle Diarmid's box, the one he had found in his abandoned caravan in the app. He had been able to program it successfully as a means of transferring virtual inventory objects between group members. That was how Kosche's sole leg ended up with Isabel. But he was pretty sure he had also found a way to use it as a one-way portal or containment device as well. He had started small with this idea, programming one of the other boxes Lucas took from the starting glass in the first episode, the one promising a journey to paradise with a permanent stop in hell, as a recursive destination for Owen, Isabel's brother, should the finest flower of clan Kempion prove a threat. Not to get too metaphorical, he had tested that code with a coin that was not valuable, one that was no longer legal tender. To test it properly, he made the portal recursive so that the coin came back and Jack could trace its adventures after a fashion. The literal bad penny returned to Lucas's box every time. More scratched and beaten up with each sojourn, its code detailing the coin's hapless peregrinations. It wasn't worth anything, so people who scooped it up just tended to swear at it and throw it away. It was even rejected as unfit for a dead man's eye, insufficient fare to pay the ferryman. There was a very dark story in there somewhere, Jack reflected. In any case, if Owen ever showed up, they'd be ready if he got it in mind to harm Isabel. Recursion? And looping was easier in a way than programming something that would effect a permanent and irreversible transfer. Jack would have no way of checking whether such code worked until it either failed or held. He was still tweaking it, but his uncle's box was his ticket to the dearest home his heart could barely remember. He'd never try to go while he still had his mother and his friends, but this was not his world. Then again, that was the promise that Jack needed the box to keep. The world, he knew, needed it to hold something, someone else. Could Jack give up his dream to contain a nightmare? The others signed off, and Jack stayed in the archives, searching through the many tales of the King of Ireland's son. Like Lucas, Jack found a box. This one was about half a hand in size and as thick as a small paperback, a small but not insubstantial thing. It was dirty dishwater in color, shelved sideways in a collection of books that were all the colors that Andrew Lang rejected for his Rainbow Fairies series, kind of squashed in. All the off-color squashed fairies, Jack smiled to himself. The Tinker's Dam, read the lid. There's a mistake here, or the engraving wasn't finished, Jack said. The expression is Tinker's Dam with an N, signifying a trifling curse. This is spelled like what you build to control the flow of a river. There's a letter missing, he said to Moot. No, there isn't, Moot replied. The box was locked. How do I open it? Jack asked. Maybe the key is another box, Moot suggested. Jack twigged and added a description of this box to his virtual inventory, then a description of putting the smaller box inside his Uncle Djarmed's box. He held his breath and waited. Click, returned the app. When the time came for Jack to tell his story, The audience received a description of a map that unfolded like tiles, one square at a time, running from west to east and revealing new landscapes and coordinates with each unfolding. When they looked away from the map, the same features were described in their immediate environment, Jack began. Welcome, friends. As we know, the tales of the King of Ireland's son, sometimes his firstborn, as in the case of Red John, sometimes his only son by his first queen long past, are numerous. In them, the King's son is never called a prince, and he rarely claims courtly trappings for himself, except perhaps at the end of a tale when he finally assumes his reign. Generally, stories about him are tales that deal with coming of age. Tonight's story is one such, and there will be many features of it that you will find familiar, but hopefully no less entertaining for all that. Once, there was a son of the King of Ireland, who left his father's domain to seek his fortune. Whether his father had other sons to come after him is not known only that this king, however high or minor he was, did not miss his heir and did not mark his absence from court. He took his hawk, his hound, and his horse, armed himself, dressed and provisioned himself for a long journey, and set out. One day his hawk killed a raven. The king's son was surprised at this because he thought that his bird was too old to hunt indeed he had taken it mainly for company for fear of what might befall it if it were left behind and because the bird was wise and told good stories the king's son looked at the dead raven on the snowy ground for winter was fast taking its hold on the land he remarked the whiteness of the snow the raven's black wing and the redness of its blood I swear that I shall not love any woman save one whose hair is black as the raven's wing, whose skin is white as the snow, and whose lips are as red as the blood spilled here. I place myself under a solemn vow. Then you're a fool, croaked the wise old bird, but do as you will. Sometimes wisdom comes of foolishness. The woman you seek is queen of the eastern kingdom. So the King of Ireland's son set his heart towards the sunrise, full of the hope of adventure. How did you kill the raven? he asked his old bird. Playing chess, the creature answered. We played best of three, and he lost. Birds don't play chess. The higher ones do. We invented it. That I cannot believe. "'Why do you think the anchoring towers are called rooks?' the old bird shot back, mildly ruffled. "'In any case, he lost, you've made your oath, "'so we have no choice but to press on and see it fulfilled.' "'They came to a town and were confronted by a funeral procession. "'It was a rather sorry affair, "'a makeshift observance by the deceased family and friends.' no finely caparisoned horses in black satin and silver livery pulling a fine carriage, just the man's nearest and dearest, carrying on as best they could and as loudly as they dared. Suddenly, a man rushed out of the crowd of onlookers and laid a note for an unpaid debt of five pounds upon the corpse. The family of the dead man lamented all the louder because at that time there was a law in Ireland that said someone who died in debt could not be buried until the family made good what was owing. Soon another man rushed forward and laid a creditor's note on the dead man for the same amount. Now the king of Ireland's son had brought a little money for his journey but it was far from a princely sum. He had twenty pounds on him. "'It's a shame the family cannot clear his debts so the poor fellow can be buried decently,' he said to himself. "'He paid the stranger's debts himself, much to the relief and gratitude of the family. "'The king's son said it was the least a good man could do, and went on his way.' "'That was a good deed,' said his old bird. "'Fancy a game of chess? You would be a worthy opponent.' When I am as old as you, replied the young man, stroking the creature who had alighted on his shoulder, perhaps I will be able to meet the stakes you play for, for now I have my oath. They made camp and the king's son was greeted by a short man dressed all in grey and green, wearing a cloak the colour of dusk on Midsummer's Eve. Will you take me into your service? the strange little man asked. I just cleared the debts of a dead man, answered the king's son. I have very little to pay you with until I seek my fortune, and nothing to give you unless I find it. What fortune are you seeking? asked the wee green man. The king's son told him of his oath. That was foolish, for you may find that the queen of the eastern realm isn't worth the trouble. But in any case, I would still take service with you. "'My payment can be deferred "'until your fortune is found. "'What would you take as wages? "'Your companionship "'and the first kiss "'of your raven-haired bride "'when you find her,' "'answered the little man. "'The king's son agreed "'and they spent the night "'by the campfire, "'telling first tales of rogues, "'then tales of heroes, "'and finally sleeping until dawn "'when they set out again. "'They went on together "'until they met a long-sighted fellow with a longer-sighted rifle. "'What are you aiming at?' asked the King of Ireland's son. "'A pheasant in the royal woods of the Eastern Kingdom,' replied the man. "'If I hurry, I can have the dish dressed and prepared for my supper.' "'The King's son knew that they were many leagues from the border of the Eastern Kingdom, "'and there was no way a normal man could make such a shot.' The marksman is a good one to have in our company, young master, whispered the little green man. The king's son asked if the hunter cared to join them and what he would take for wages. Land enough for a house and a garden, answered the marksman. If I fulfill my oath and find my fortune, it shall be yours, the king's son promised. They went on all together, and soon came upon a man with his large ear pressed to the ground, listening intently to the grass dreaming of growing deep below the winter earth in little green whispers. He'd be another good one to join us, the short man affirmed. Like the rifleman, the avid listener agreed to the land for a house and a garden as his wages. They went on together until they found a man hopping around on one foot, his other foot resting on his shoulder, half draped across the back of his neck. "'Can we help you?' the king's son asked. "'Is your foot injured?' "'Not a bit of it,' the hopping man assured him. "'But I tell you truly, if I went with two feet on the ground, I'd run so fast I'd surely vanish.' The short, green fellow winked at the king's son, who invited him to join their company. The hopping man accepted, and that night they all made camp, passing a third of the night telling tales of fools, a third of it telling Fenian tales, and the other third sleeping. When they set out again, they came across a man who was blown forward as he whistled out, and then came to rest as he held his breath. In this way he travelled. "'in cheerful, short bursts and rests. "'Why do you move that way, and not whistle your way constantly?' the king's son asked. "'Because if I did, I'd blow all before me to barren stubble and ruin.' "'The green man tugged knowingly on the sleeve of the king of Ireland's son, "'and so the whistler was added to the group. "'By and by they found a man ahead of them laying a roadbed.' "'crushing rocks by jumping on them sideways and landing on them with his thigh, "'then smoothing the tiny pieces flat. "'Our final addition,' whispered the wee man who had joined the king's son first. "'I have so many houses and gardens to finance now,' the king's son reckoned. "'I feel I'm bringing a whole kingdom in my wake.' "'But he was glad of his companions.' By and by, they came to a house in a valley shaded by the single feather of a great bird. We can seek shelter there, young master, but a wily giant abides therein. Let me go first and prepare a welcome. Suddenly, a great quarterstaff was in the wee man's hand, as big as three heroes were tall, and as he strode down the hill, he seemed to get larger, not smaller. Soon he was laying about him with the pole, making short work of the giant's household, and he had grown to the size of a giant himself. Jack paused and pressed the hot key. Seven of hearts. It's the Marvelous Companions! I love this story! Ours have some different talents, but the fun is just beginning now, Lucas cried. You have to continue, and the card is yours anyway. Is the company agreed? Jack asked. Rock and roll, giant slayer, Isabel said. Baba Yaga waved her hand in grudging consensus. Let the poor boy have his moment in the sun. Such moments pass in the blink of an evil eye. Jack shivered involuntarily at the witch's words. He drew a deep breath and held it for a few seconds as if he were trying in vain to keep it for someone else. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.